0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's episode of The Christian Skeptic is sponsored by Paul, the Apostle. No, not really. Uh, But today's question does come from Paul. Full disclosure, no nepotism here, but Paul is my cousin, so shout out to you, Pablito. And last time we talked about uh, the podcast, you threw a question at me, which I thought was really, really uh, good and worth recording an episode over. And I know it's been a while uh, since we've talked about this, so you might be surprised uh, to learn that I'm answering this question. But The question that you pose to me is, is evidence-based faith always the best kind of faith? And I think this question is very interesting because I'm very tempted to say yes. Right? I mean, you guys know me. I love reason. I love logic. Uh, My personal faith, I feel like, is very evidence-based. And even when it comes to the stuff that is not evidence-based, which is what we call phenomenology, right? So when it comes to the phenomenological aspects of my faith, I'm skeptical of my own faith. So, of course, I want to say, well, yes, evidence-based faith is the faith that makes the most sense. It makes the most reason, it has the most logic in it, but I can't ignore the phenomenological aspects of faith. And I can't ignore it because the Bible's full of it, right? And Christianity's full of it, and really religion is full of the phenomenological aspects of faith, and so I guess I'm going to start this episode off with a little personal skepticism, and then we can talk about some objective viewpoints on phenomenology as well as evidence-based faith. So personally, and if you spent some time listening to this podcast, you'll know that I am a big Frederick Nietzsche fan, and that I'm also very acquainted with the writings of David Hume. Something else you may be surprised to learn about me is that One of my favorite podcasts is Making Sense with Sam Harris. Now, for those of you that don't know Sam Harris, he is probably the world's most leading philosophical voice on atheism, Uh, a very intelligent man and someone I look up to and respect for his intelligence, though I do disagree with his beliefs. I am not an atheist, obviously. But nevertheless, I spend a lot of time listening to his podcast. And one of the main objections he raises about the phenomenology of religion is something that Nietzsche confronted and Hume questioned, and really we're all kind of aware of and familiar with in some sense, and that's the characteristic of the dogma that comes out of the phenomenological side of religion. And why is that? Well, because the dogma has been dangerous in history. Now, I do want to distinguish between a good dogma and a bad dogma because I do think that there are good aspects of dogmatism in religion that you can have and obviously, we know about bad aspects of dogmatism in religion. So before we actually get into examples, though, I almost forgot to define dogmatism, right? I think it's very important that we define it so that we know what we're talking about and where we're going here. So a dogma is a principle or a set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. So it's, it's the rule. It's the principle or principles in religion that cannot be questioned. And I think we see this uh, most notably in the Qur'an uh, as opposed to the Bible, and so we can spend a, a couple minutes kind of deriving the definition from the example of the Qur'an. The dogma of Islam is to hold up the Qur'an as the actual word of God versus the Bible is the inspired word of God, right? It's no secret that one of the tenets of Islam is that the Qur'an comes directly from Allah and that Allah cannot be questioned. If Allah is to be questioned, that is not faith, right? That is a doubt, and there are uh, remedies for those that doubt in the Quran that, well, we're not going to get into in this episode. So then there uh, becomes the danger in interpreting the Quran as literal or metaphorical, right? Because the Quran has verses within it that talk about acts of violence against those that that open up the door to beating women, uh, to subjugating women, And again, we're not going to get into that, but the danger in the dogma of it being literal versus it being figurative or metaphorical is what differentiates extremists versus non-extremists, right? It's what differentiates the fundamentalist to the New Age uh, Muslim, as it were. And I'm going to get off this metaphor because I feel like this topic can become very controversial very quickly. And we should have discussions of Islam on this podcast. I'm totally open to that, but I'm going to save that for a later episode. Because that's not the main topic of this episode. But back to the Bible now. There's a strange dogma among the Christian world that has existed since the birth of Christianity as to the dogma of the commandments and the dogma of rules. And I think the best example we saw this lived out at was the Crusades. Now, granted, I'm not going to place the blame of the Crusades entirely on dogma. I think that there was a lot of sin in the Crusades. I think that there was a lot of greed and hunger for power. There was a lot of will to power and will to pleasure, to quote Nietzsche, in the Crusades, right? So we can't, it's unfair to blame the Crusades entirely On dogma and dogmatism and a dogmatic literal interpretation of everything in the scriptures. I think that that's entirely unfair. But nevertheless, it still falls under the guise of dogma. The Catholic Church pre Reformation fell under the guise of dogma in their beliefs, and these aren't scriptural (laughs) and dogmatic beliefs, so I will again concede this point. But the Catholic Church was dogmatic that the text of the scriptures had to remain in Latin. And of course, we know what happened, right? Martin Luther uh, was very poised in, in his time in history, what with the invention of the printing press and all, to be at the time and place that he did and to make the statements and, and proposals he did. And, and what happened? Well, the Bible, the scripture was translated into German, right? So that the common person could read the scripture. But he had to fight the dogma of the religious elites at the time. And so not not to belabor this point too much, but I think we see, and I think it's very plausible, and by that I mean most of us won't have a hard time picturing how dogma and religion can become dangerous. Dogma and religion can lead men to commit atrocities and feel no remorse about it, right? Dogmatic religious views and... Again, these don't necessarily mean that they come from the Bible or they come from a scriptural text. But at the same time, maybe they do. And maybe the text isn't interpreted correctly. And I think that's where reason and logic should come into play. But think about the South in the early 1800s in America. or Sorry, early to mid-1800s in America. We had slave owners using Scripture. (laughs) Heck, think post-Civil War, right? We have people using Scripture to justify racism. And that's absolutely wrong. And saying the Bible condones slavery when it absolutely does not. And I've talked about that in a previous episode. And so uh, go back and reference that episode. And if you still have more questions, we can have a conversation. I am thinking of doing a part two to that episode because of how complex that issue is. But anyway, we have examples of dogma doing more harm to the world and doing more harm to Christianity and to religion in general than good. And so... The fear of the phenomenological viewpoints of faith losing control is when they become dogmatic and when they become dogmatic in the wrong way. Now, I do think that there is a necessary dogma, and I think that there's an intrinsic dogma that we all have. Of course, I (laughs) want to approach this one a little hesitantly, because the entire job of my podcast is to question everything. And if I'm to say that there is a viewpoint or an aspect of faith that is above questioning, then that defeats the purpose of this podcast, right? So I think dogma is is dangerous. Uh, it can be dangerous. I think where dogma becomes valuable is dogma in the area of value, right? So I think—and and let me let me clarify before I, I go into that. Just because we, ha- we hold something to be dogmatic, or we hold a view dogmatically, rather— doesn't mean we can't investigate it and reason about it. So the only things that really come to mind is the answer to the question, who is God? And then the view that human life holds an eternal value to it. And so who is God? I think we should view as a dogmatic truth, whether we have the truth correct or not, because that's really the thing, right? Is I think most of us, and Probably myself included don't even have this truth correct when we ask that question, who is God? And you have my full permission to pause the podcast at this point in time and sit back in your chair and reflect on that question. I would encourage you to do so. I, I do so, and it sometimes it drives me insane, and sometimes it's illuminating to think that I don't actually have this entire picture. I can't actually fully answer that question. And maybe we do another episode on this and and discuss some of the reasoning behind it. But I think the answer that we give and the answer that we continue to mold in our hearts and minds and evolve on isn't necessarily a, a question we're trying to have answered, but rather... A dogmatic fact of the universe, and, and, and I would place the dogma on the universe, on everything in life, but a dogmatic fact on the universe that is becoming increasingly and increasingly either unveiled or veiled to us. Again, I may be opening up a can of worms with this one, so I'm going to drop this one here. But I think we can also agree that the value of a human life is eternal, meaning that the value of a human life has repercussions that uh, last beyond this age, right? That, that, and and of course, for me, this view comes from the, the teaching in the Bible that humans are made in the image of God, right? That, that humans have this intrinsic, eternal, uh, divine value in them. And so I think that those are probably the only two dogmas I would really say are safe, but who knows? I, I, I may change my mind on that one. I'm honestly still wrestling through this question myself. So anyway, that's the danger of dogma. Um, I'm not going to spend much time talking about reasonable faith because I think I've spent a lot of time and will continue to spend a lot of time talking about reason and doubts and skepticism and questioning and logic in this podcast. But now let's get to the phenomenology of faith. And this is is the part that I feel is worth wrestling over. And, And the part that gives me pause the most on phenomenology is the Sermon on the Mount, You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying out these uh, rules for life, right? He's laying out all of these things on. Do you want to love God? Do you want to serve God? Do you want to have the most fulfilled life possible? Matthew 5, 6, and 7, do this. That's that's pretty important. If Jesus is Yahweh in flesh, if he is the Logos, Referencing John chapter 1, that's the Greek word for word, it has oh, so much philosophical and, and psychological meaning behind it. <laughs> Maybe I'll do an episode on that. But if Jesus is the Logos, God in flesh, and God says, hey, this thing called life, you're trying to figure it out, here's the model. Wow, that's important. And, but, but in there... <laughs> Uh, he he says, don't worry. He says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble or its own evil, as some translations say. There's no evidence for that. There isn't. Oh, sure, we may have anecdote for that. We may have anecdote for someone that lives a, a, a good and godly life. And I think it's the Western world is full of anecdote of people that follow the Sermon on the Mount and end up wealthy and, and healthy and wise, not to sound like a prosperity preacher. But there, there's no actual evidence for that. There's no promise that you will actually end up healthy, wealthy, and wise. Quite the opposite, actually. For most of history, to be a Christian, to live out the Sermon on the Mount, meant the opposite of health. It meant torture. It meant death. It meant the opposite of wealth. It meant alienation. It meant the opposite of wisdom in society. It meant a a, a casting out. And so what do we do then? Do we love God and not obey the Sermon on the Mount? Heavens, no. It's there for a reason. All at once, it is a reasonable argument... When you consider the law, when you consider Christ, when you consider the sacrifice, when you consider the things that the Bible lays out in its theological truth, but it's an appeal to reason from phenomenology. It's an appeal to reason your life before it happens, right? And perhaps the evidence-based faith alone (laughs) is not enough faith to reason your life, to model it after, after the Sermon on the Mount. And there are many other examples in the Bible, but this is the one that perplexes me the most because there's nothing reasonable or logical about following the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because it would follow evidence if Jesus said, choose to live like this. And the day you choose to live like this, you're going to win the lottery and everything's going to be taken care of and you'll have a wonderful life and you'll be able to give and, and do whatever you want. But that doesn't happen. Instead, he assumes You'll be slapped on one cheek and you'll turn the other. He assumes you'll be sued. You'll be the victim of injustice. He assumes his followers will be strongly tempted to worry about what they'll eat or even what they'll wear the next day. And so all at once, the hardest phenomenological construct of Christianity simply becomes following the Bible. You'll have no evidence that it will play out the way you want it to play out, or the way you've seen it play out in other people's lives. And I think that's where phenomenology really takes its ugliest turn in the Western church. You see, I think in the Eastern church and in churches that are in, like we talked about the last episode, countries that are hostile towards, towards Christianity, there's, there's no question of the phenomenology there. There's no question of the life change there because it is so drastic and so stark a contrast between the way people were living to the way that they are now living, because the trial and tribulation is what comes first. But here in the West, the trial and tribulation doesn't come first for Western Christians. And by the West, I do mean the Americas and Europe and the more, as I talked about last episode, secularizing world. And so when those of us that are skeptical to the church or, or when atheists or those outside the church enter the church and start to experience the phenomenology of things, the phenomenological aspects of it are weird. <laughs> like, let's just be real. They're weird, right? It's speaking in tongues and it's supposed healings, maybe, but there's no evidence for it and God spoke to me, oh really, what did God say? God said he wanted me to buy this house or send my kids to this school, or God spoke to me and told me to buy this car, or God spoke to me and told me to marry this person. And and it seems a little silly because you're like, okay, well, those are things that people do every day. How do you know it was God, right? God spoke to me and told me to eat this chalupa from Taco Bell and three hours later, the devil might be speaking to me, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> no offense, Taco Bell, or anyone that works at Taco Bell, but let's be real. <laughs> the, the The point being is that in the Western, more developed culture, the phenomenological becomes a bit weirder, right? And, and, and so the phenomenology is an important aspect of faith. There is no doubt to that at all, but so is evidence. Again, I'm not going to harp on this point, but to get back to Paul's question then, if evidence-based faith is solely evidence-based faith, I would argue it's not actual faith. It is looking at Christianity from the outside looking in, essentially. It's the Christian philosopher who spends his entire life analyzing Christian philosophy, Christian teaching, Christian theology, and is himself not a Christian. On the other hand, an entire faith based on phenomenology, and again, phenomenology, we've defined and described that in this podcast before, but phenomenology really takes its root word in that phenomena. And so that's the portion of faith that's lacking evidence. It's the portion of faith that is all feeling, right? So anytime anyone makes the, the claim, God spoke to me, that's phenomena, right? That's, that's phenomenology. And we could make the argument, and I probably would side with this argument, that God spoke to me can also apply to textual understanding of the actual Bible, right? Reading the Bible, comparing it with the other verses in the Bible, because the Bible is the most self-referenced book in probably all of human history. I don't know that for sure. That's why I say the word probably. But look it up. Almost every single verse in the Bible cross-references other verses in the Bible with the truth that's in it. Yeah, there's dozens of different authors, but it's consistent. And so I would argue that God speaking to you is also God revealing to you through Perhaps reason, perhaps logic, perhaps the phenomenology of the text. But either way, dogma can be dangerous. A faith that stands alone completely on phenomenology and a faith that stands alone completely on evidence and reason are both faiths on a crutch. And they must be. They'll always be faith on a crutch. The two legs faith needs to walk on is evidence and phenomenology. And I might be the first to admit that I probably am walking with a limp in the phenomenological area. And as I'm recording this, I'm thinking, you know what, we're going to have to have more episodes on phenomenology because I want to unpack this with you guys. You can come along with me on this uh, phenomenological journey uh, throughout the podcast. But no, evidence-based faith is not the best faith. Faith has to have a component of evidence, a component of reason, logic, and a component of phenomenology. I'm not going to give you an exact ratio because I don't know because when you look at evidence, reason, logic, that includes scripture, Jesus, history, uh, church teaching, logic itself, philosophy, uh, anthropology, right? <laughs> we, we have to know ourselves to know why it is what we're believing what, what we're believing in, right? Uh, there's aspects of psychology in it. There's aspects of obviously theology, hermeneutics. There's so much that is a part of evidence-based faith, right? To say it's not important at all is a, a, a grave and foolish mistake, but to say phenomenology is not important at all is also a grave and foolish mistake. But we are out of time for this episode, so let me know what you think. Send in some comments, some questions, some feedback. Give me a shout out. Please continue to share this podcast with friends and family so that more people can join in the discussion that we're having. And as always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.